Welcome back to Colin Shots. This is Seth Partnow. I'm joined today by uh, one of my favorite guests, uh, Caitlin Cooper, uh, who, um, despite being a, a great basketball mind, pref- prefers to, to stick to her hometown team, the Indiana Pacers, which is uh, good for us because uh, the Pacers are pretty good this year. Um, I've already said um, before the season, I was expecting the Pistons to be kind of the quote unquote bad team that was going to be frisky. And uh, the Pacers have definitely been the team that I thought the Pistons were going to be. Um, and that's probably even selling them a little short, but uh, Caitlin, um, how good is this team? That's the big question, right? That, that's the question I ask myself after almost every game they play. And it, it changes almost every game they play. And if you just look at their last two games in Los Angeles, if you watch them play the Clippers, you'd probably think, Oh, you know, they're going to fall back a little bit to earth, more like what we expected this team was going to be. And then to watch them, you know, erase a 17-point lead against the Lakers, which, to be fair, the Lakers had a large part in. Then you start to think, you know, this is kind of reminiscent of their 17-18 season when Victor Oladipo first became an all-star. And they had all these crazy comebacks that I was ranking at the time where they would erase 15-point leads. And you could just tell that the team had really good vibes around them. And you get the similar feel when you watch the Pacers this year. And it's it's really tough to assess for me from an analysis standpoint. You know, I know front offices say a lot. They don't want to get too high. They don't want to get too low that you have to, you, you can't, you know, be going up and down. But when I watched them have their four game win streak here about a week or so ago, when they beat Toronto and Charlotte and Houston, like things that they were doing defensively in the second half of a lot of those games were good adjustments, but they've had some, injury luck I guess I would say where you know in the past they've been the team that's had a lot of people out with injuries and now they've been facing a lot of teams that have had people out and in that case they didn't have you know the Raptors didn't have Pascal Siakam and Fred Van Fleet they came out after halftime and they were doubling down on a lot of bully drives and pretty much forcing the Raptors to beat them in a shootout I don't know if that works if you have Pascal Siakam out there available to be you know close to the top 10 player that he's been wiggling through tight spaces and making plays out of it. They were hard trapping LaMelo ball and Charlotte at, you know, to half court and the Hornets shot like one of seven from three in the fourth quarter, Houston, Eric Gordon blitzed them for like 20 points in the first half. They come out, they go switch to blitz. Kevin Porter jr. Is not available to be attacking in isolation. Like he does in four on three situations. Adjustment works very well. The Rockets do not shoot the ball. Well, so you know, it's that type of stuff that makes it kind of hard for me to figure, like, is this team this good? Would they make other adjustments if those guys were available? And, you know, what exactly are they? I think it's it's something we as observers are trying to figure out, and I think it's it's something they as a team are trying to figure out. Um, I, you know, it's as my, the, if for no other reason than as sort of Miles Turner and – Buddy healed turn. If this is a if this is a playoff team, um, why are you looking to to trade those guys? Whereas, if you think this is a little smoke and mirrors, then this might be sort of peak of peak of uh, of trade value. And so, you know, from the Pacers' standpoint, figuring that out is is I'm sure a daily a daily task, a daily um, you know, we like the ride we're on, but is this real? Absolutely. Because, I mean, you look at the Laker game the other night, they erased that 17 point lead and they almost did it in roughly two and a half minutes. Like they erased 10 points, went on a 10-0 run in about two minutes and 20 seconds. And when you're watching the Lakers do that, and like how the Pacers got those points, you know, Aaron Neesmith comes off like a basic pin down into a handoff. And it looks like the Lakers have never seen that action before. Like he's wide open. 
And then they commit some turnovers, which is just feeding the beast with Benedict Mathern out on the court. Like that's, that's going to be points. He gets out in transition and then they give up another transition three and similar, you know, events happen when they beat Brooklyn here recently as well, where they started that quarter, the fourth quarter on a 20 to six run, the Nets committed like four or five turnovers, very not, you know, inattention to detail, you know, turning it over on an inbounds pass, Ben, Ben Simmons trying to dribble behind his back and just losing control of the ball. The Pacers are going to turn that stuff into points. And that's a big change for them. What they're doing in transition, I think might be, you know, the biggest difference about this season compared to last. But again, it's like you said, they're, they're facing some opponents there. I kind of question, you know, what was the compete level at the start of that quarter for the Lakers and the Nets versus the Pacers are definitely playing with an edge. They're competing at a high level. Um, very much so in the second half of games. I mean, I think they're competing at a high level all the time, but their defense takes things up a notch, you know, in the, in the third and fourth quarter. And then their offense, they've had some 40 point quarters in, in the fourth here before too. So, you know, it, it is definitely difficult. And what you bring up with miles and buddy, I think is a really good point. I mean, with miles, it's a little bit more clear cut because, you know, if you're having those conversations with him and I don't know whether this is the case or not, but if you're having conversations with him and he's indicating that he wants to test free agency, whether this is smoke and mirrors or not, in my opinion, you have to trade him. And probably the sooner the better, because he's helping them win games, without a doubt. So I want to get to, to Turner, who I think is, has added some stuff to his game that I'm not sure that, that we've seen before. I remember we talked about him last year as a as a possible trade target for the Warriors. Actually, let's talk about him now, because we we you basically taught I was I was kind of advocating for the Warriors to trade, you know, why one or more of their, their young players to, to Indy for, for Turner last year. And you basically talked me out of wanting to do that uh, by describing some of his limitations on both ends of the court. And from what I've seen, uh, at least offensively this year, he has been much more adept playing on the move, um, rolling to the basket, not just being a pick and pop shooter. Um, am, is, am I just catching like a, like some good good periods from him, or has has there been a, a change in his game? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot of factors. I think there has been a change in his game. I mean, if you look at his numbers on synergy, at least of the screens that he's using, he's rolling on fifty five percent. So that's more than he's ever done in his career. Even the last time when he started at the five, which would have been eighteen nineteen, I think he was at like twenty nine percent of his screens that he rolled on. So I think that he is playing with more force with that regard. And then also, like, I mean, the biggest change in his game is his free throw attempts, right? I mean, I think he's at, he was at 60% about a week ago, which was like nuts, but he's at 45% now and career for 30%. So when you're moving toward the basket more, which was going to be important, I know we talked about this on the Tyrese jump pack passing podcast that we did as well, that with the way that Tyrese plays, he doesn't get to the rim a lot, but you know, the floater, his range, uh, the feel that he has for skip passes, fake lobs, like having somebody that moves toward the basket was going to be a good fit for him. So one or the other of them, I felt like was going to have to adjust their games. And, and rightfully so, it's been miles to this point in time. I think also like when he sees a switch, when they're running just basic pick and roll, a lot of teams are going to switch against Halliburton rather than going to drop. He's been more active of recognizing Miles, I mean, that like I have a switch, I'm going to roll directly into this and, and get positioning. He's already made more hook shots this year than he attempted last year. And I know a lot of people are going to point at that and be like, well, now he's at solo five. And, and there, that certainly matters. Like he is being used as the screener more often. But like just to watch him in the post, there's a meaningful change. Like if people want to see an example of this, go back and watch the last game from last year that he played against the Phoenix Suns. The Pacers opened that game with a set for him, just a cross screen where then that cross screener misdirection goes through elevator screens on the other side of the floor to get him a post touch on the first possession. 
and he gets blocked from behind by Jay Crowder. Like, just not good processing. The next possession or two possessions later, he, they throw it to him in the post again, and Chris Paul pulls the chair. He has no balance. Like, very – the last several games before he went out with injury, it was pretty clear that they were trying to get him touches earlier in the game. The process just isn't great. Now, if you watch him, like, they played the Pelicans. The Pelicans went small just with Zion at the five. They were switching everything. And he's a lot more patient. He's going to use his left shoulder to get into guys a little bit. Um, I don't think it's always perfect for him in the post, but as far as like just doing something against a switch, which we really haven't seen from him, um, that stuff has improved. The three-point shooting's dropped off a little bit on this trip to L.A., but I think it's a mixture, to summarize my answer, it's a mixture of getting to play with Tyrese Halliburton, who's obviously a fantastic playmaker, makes everybody's life easier. It's a factor of their spacing and stuff that they're running, and then also just him showing you know improvement over things that he was doing last year as well. Would you say his mobility is a little bit better this year than than it has been in the past i would say that yeah it looks like in terms of them him being able to get up and down the floor like if you watch some of their possessions in transition like obviously what you're doing in transition just isn't just about running fast but you're gonna see him actually get out in front of the break as a rim runner at times and that sucks in the defense where i don't think that like the pacers a lot of people forget that at the back end of the bjorkren season they were playing at a fast pace predominantly when you know it was Miles had injuries that season too, and it was Sabonis, and they were playing at like a top five pace under Bjorkren. But I've never seen him run and get up and down the floor to the degree that he has in this offense. And, you know, too, when he puts the ball on the floor, sometimes out of the pick and pop, he can be pretty agile trying to get to the rim in those situations as well. So, yeah, I don't know what he did over the summer in terms of conditioning and, and agility, but it does seem like there's been a little bit of an upgrade in that area as well. So that's that's one area of improvement. I think that we've we've buried the lead a little bit, and that's um, I've been a big fan of Tyrese Halliburton since I saw him as a, a freshman. I scouted him as a freshman at at Iowa State. Um, I don't think I no. I'm going to go ahead and say that I never saw him being this level of offensive hub that he's been so far this year. I think. I did not watch him at Iowa State because I wasn't doing scouting information. But over the last 26 games of last season, then when I wrote the jump pass piece over the summer, I kind of felt this was coming. I didn't know that it was going to be to this degree, but I felt I did a podcast and somebody's like, give me a Pacers hot take. I'm like, I think he's going to be firmly in the all-star conversation if they can win enough games. Like, I I didn't know if he'd be a starter, but I I thought he could be an all-star this year based on what I was seeing from his playmaking at the back end of last season. They've clearly turned the keys completely over to him. I mean, he leads the NBA in passes. He leads the NBA in touches. Um, but he does it in a very unique way because it's not like he's soaking up tons of usage. His usage has gone up, which was needed. But, like, look at looking at their numbers and when you watch them play offensively, they isolate so little. Like, I think they're second to last in isolation frequency. And he barely isolates at all. Like, if you just look at the guys that have, you know, six or more minutes of time of possession, I think he's, like, second to last in that group in isolation frequency because the Pacers, like, just very much want to get to the next action. Like, that's the number one thing that I hear their coaching staff talk about a lot, whether it's, you know, at halftime stuff or just at practice. Is like they want to get to the next thing, whether that's, you know, Buddy setting a reignition screen for Tyrese, like a ghost screen to get the action going or them just flowing to the next thing. I think that's kind of been a hallmark of the offense in terms of the transition as well. But Tyrese just individually has made, you know, some strides in various areas. He's taking deeper threes, about two more deep threes per game, which you can tell is helping him against the switches where it's not just him spinning his tires all the time. against the switch. Like he hits the switch pocket before the switch actually happens. And that range is helping him there. Um, He's been able to get a little bit more going to the left. 
sidestep to the left in, t- in case teams weak him. Um, driving give and go. That's one of my favorite things he does against the switch is that he'll fake his his sidestep to the right to try to draw the defense on his shot. Then he'll give the ball up and cut in front of the switch and go to the basket. Kind of stuff that you'd see from Steph Curry at times in the Warriors offense. But yeah, I mean, Tyrese has just been absolutely splendid. I don't think you can really have enough split um, superlatives for what he's been doing for the Pacers so far to start the season. I mean, just one stat I like to track uh, a playmaking usage stat, which basically uh, hopefully normalizes which playmakers are, are are getting lucky or unlucky with teammates just making shots. He leads the league in playmaking usage by almost five percentage points. Like on on twenty nine times out of every hundred chances that he's on the floor, he directly creates a, an opportunity for the Pacers. And second place is is just under twenty five. Um, now that's that that's a that's a function as of of you know style of play and the fact that there aren't a ton of other ball handlers on the team, but still he always profiled much more as like a high level connector than this. And I think as you're saying, he's added just enough kind of scoring. It's, it's funny to say just enough because he's averaging just under 20 a game, but just enough like from a scoring standpoint that he is that, that even, even, you know, more effectively it makes his passing more effective just because he prefers to pass, but he can score on you. It's almost uh, like, like a point guard Jokic, which is like a weird kind of, <laughs> um, you know, inversion since Jokic was like a point guard center, but in just in terms of controls the ball a lot, but much more wants to dime people up than score himself. But he can, if you, if you make him. Yeah. And, and that's kind of like from a team building standpoint, that inclusiveness and how it feeds into what they're doing in transition as well. Like when you know that you have a guy out there who's going to throw advanced passes, he's going to throw hit ahead passes. Like it makes you run harder. Like people want to run with him. You can see it every game or they want to cut harder to the basket because they know that there's a greater chance that, you know, they're going to actually get and touch the ball. I think that's definitely a part of it. And, you know, I don't know. It's just everything that he's doing out on the court. Like, I think that the one aspect of it, when you say that about, you know, a point guard Jokic and that, you know, he thinks to score second, that kind of stood out a little bit in their most recent game against Minnesota. I wrote a little bit about it and that just as an individual primary defender, since Tyrese has been traded here, I don't think I've seen anybody guard him better than what Jaden McDaniels did in that game. And in part, some of it was because, you know, Tyrese was rejecting a lot of the screens with Rudy Gobert on him so that, you know, they could attack into that open space rather than just doing like a kamikaze drive into Rudy Gobert at the basket. So that wasn't really, you know, peeling Jaden McDaniels off. Like he wasn't using the screen. So Jaden McDaniels was kind of sticking on his hip. And there was parts within that game where Chris Finch and the Timberwolves were sending him under on screens. They were sending Austin Rivers under on screens. They were sending Anthony Edwards under on some screens against Tyrese. And the interesting thing about that is, is like McDaniels has enough length where he can duck under and still surge out and kind of contest if you want to go to a pull-up three. Those other two guys didn't. And on none of those possessions did Tyrese shoot a pull-up three. Like, and, and so I kind of wondered, like, you know, you have to have the right personnel in order to do that. But I kind of wonder if teams would test that because the Pacers do have so much shooting. If you can stay home and face guard those other guys and really, you know, force Tyrese to be a score first player, whether that's something that other teams will test out. Because I've watched so so many teams try different coverages against him. And it's like, okay, the Hornets went drop in the fourth quarter and that was pretty much death. He's found some hacks against switches now. So that's not working quite as well. And then, like, the only other thing that I've seen that's been very effective is last year when the Kings went weak to switch with Davian Mitchell, where they really forced him left. And even now, 
Like the Pacers have started running more action for him to go left than what they were ever doing at the back end of last season. So I don't even know how effective that's going to be. So he, he's really been a coverage killer in a lot of different ways. So you think he's an all-star this year? That's, that's yeah, uh, yeah. where uh, I think pretty solidly. I, I mean, I, you know, you mentioned them win, winning enough games. I mean, I think that, that, you know, that is one of the bigger surprises is that they, they, they are, and it doesn't feel, I don't know, that doesn't feel super fluky, even though there's there, you know, they've, they've gotten some breaks in, um, you know, in, in, you know, opponent availability, but I think we have to talk about kind of the, the, the rookie wings as well. I think this is, uh, you know, just the, the fact that they can, they can have a solid rotation of, of solid players at all times. And that's, you know the, uh, the Nemhard and 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 Matherin certainly all, you know, just getting two more guys who can play um, is a big help. You compare that to, you know, again, I I was big on the Pistons pre preseason, and then I started to watch them play, and I was like, oh wow, this is a lot of minutes to terrible players, and having two rookies who don't qualify as terrible players has helped them a lot. Yeah, I mean, if you look at they haven't played a ton of clutch minutes. I think they've played less than 100 clutch minutes so far this year. But if you look at what lineup is the most used one, Benedict Mathern and Andrew Nemhard are in it. And they've used that group against – they used it against the Lakers the other night when they won, and they used it against the Miami Heat when they won as well. It was Nemhard and, and Matherin, Buddy, Miles, and, and Tyrese. So they definitely trust those guys. I mean, Nemhard's been in the starting lineup. He didn't start the other night because of the knee injury, but – that was something that I didn't really see coming. I didn't watch a lot of Gonzaga last year. I hadn't really done – we didn't do a, a scouting pod on Andrew Nemhard before the draft. I wasn't expecting them to take another point guard. But he's out there in so many lineups with Tyrese or with TJ McConnell that that particular element of it hasn't really mattered. But his defense has really surprised me. He's not the best point-of-attack defender in terms of navigating screens. And if you watch the difference even the other night against the Lakers between him defending LeBron and him defending Russell Westbrook, he was – a lot more effective at defending LeBron, but that alone was something that I didn't know if they were going to have going into this season. And I think that probably shaded what I thought they were going to be able to do in terms of wins because their defense was so bad over the back 26 games. And, you know, Tyrese isn't really somebody that you want point of attack. You don't really want him to be expending a ton of energy against other teams' top options. But now here's Nemhard. And, and when he was in the starting lineup, you know, they're throwing him out there against Scotty Barnes. He's defending CJ McCollum. Um, he's defending LeBron the other night, like they're throwing him against top options and Tyrese doesn't have to do it. And that's been a pretty underrated element, I think, of what they've been able to do. I mean, they do that with Neesmith too, but the difference between Nemhard and Neesmith is if you can have Nemhard out there, you also get some supplemental passing, some supplemental playmaking. And he's just, he's underrated savvy and the things that he does offensively that you're not going to get out of Neesmith in the same way. Um, so that's kind of my take on him. I mean, I, I wrote a longer article if people want to read it about what he does defensively and, and some of the other smart things he do, he does where he'll mix in peel switches that the Pacers don't often utilize, but he'll recognize and communicate and do it in ways that other guys on the roster don't. But, you know, Matherin leading all, I, I don't have the stat from this morning, but was leading all players in bench scoring, um, pretty big, the big talking point around the Pacers. And I don't know where you stand on this. I'd like to get your opinion. Everyone wants to talk about why he isn't in the starting lineup. That that doesn't bother me that much. But um, what have you been your thoughts when you watch the Pacers about you know playing him more minutes with Tyrese Halliburton and potentially starting Benedict Matherin? Generally speaking, I I like to play your good players. Um, now, 
with Nemhart being as good as he has been, it's sort of a, it's almost a luxury that, that you can still play a good player there and not have to worry about it. Um, on one hand, it's working. On the other hand, it seems like the foundation of the Pacers going forward is Halbert and Matherin. Yeah. And, you know, getting that group reps seems important, but, you know, it's a long season and, and um, while things are working, I, I don't, it's not like he's not getting chances to explore the studio space. So, um, you see, see, that's, that's where I come in as well. Like yeah. he, he leads the team in fourth quarter minutes. He's a part of their two most used clutch time lineups. Um, it's going to be Tyrese and Benedict Mather and starting at some point in time. I don't know when that time's going to be. Maybe it's if they trade buddy healed, um, maybe that's where he slides in at. I do think it's important to have that defender, whether it's an or Neesmith out there when Tyrese is out there in the starting lineup, um, but they are clearly using Matherin. And the one stat that I point to is that, you know, Matherin's usage when Tyrese is on the floor is 20%. When Tyrese isn't on the floor, it's 34%. So I think they really like getting him the opportunities off the bench and he gets to explore a little bit more. Like a lot of times when he's out there with Tyrese, which I do think is his optimized form in second side operator cutting, um, being used off screens, being, being used, you know, out of veer, out of wide, that type of stuff is what, you know, is really his jam. But he gets a little bit of opportunity to do some creation. He'll, he'll handle the ball a little bit more when Tyrese isn't out there. So you're kind of getting, you know, the best of both worlds. So, you know, they are playing some together. I just, I don't think it's as much of a talking point as what it's being made out to be in Indiana sometimes, but I did want to get your input on that. No, I think, I, I, I think that that's okay. I mean, I think as you say, getting him, it, it's funny because it, it, I think it's a measure of how surprising this team is that you're sort of um, having even the discussion about, you know, well, we could, it, it, maybe it's maybe it, it, it hurts the team to to give him these sort of experimental lead creator minutes. Um, that even being a concern was was uh, I think that that those same fans that are complaining about it would have bit your hand off before the, the season. Yeah, but I, I, when I went into the season, I expected just off the bat that Benedict would start. But then once I saw some of the processing, what way they were doing it and the way they were, they were using him, I was like, you know, I don't think it's that much of a deal. And like I said, we don't know what the situation is going to be with Miles and we don't know what the situation is going to be with Buddy. But it's part of the Buddy thing, too, because they do run a lot of the same actions for Buddy that they run for Matherin. And Matherin will come in and slide into those spots when Buddy comes off the floor is that Buddy and Tyrese have really good chemistry in terms of what I mentioned before that like if, if Tyrese gets a switch, Buddy's kind of the emergency relief there that he's going to run and set a brush screen or set a ghost screen to kind of reignite the offense. And he does that better than anybody on the roster. Tyrese looks for him a lot. So, uh, and also like, if you want to maintain his trade value, I don't really think that you were going to bring him off the bench. So like, that's kind of, you know, franchise goals probably to a certain extent. So I, I, I think that that spot will open up for Benedict eventually whether it's this year or next. So the the one aspect, and I've written about this a little, but the, the one aspect of him that is that, that sort of has elevated him above a player type that I'm not always wild about in the draft, which is kind of the mid-sized wing score, like bucket getter score, just because the, the bar to clear to be effective in that is, is pretty high, but his ability to get to the line. 
Yeah. Is that how much of that is is you know goosed by the fact that he's getting to play so much against second units, or is this just something that it's it this is a, you know, I, I think it's it, it's underrated the degree to which foul drawing is a is a skill that tend that players tend to either have or they don't. You know, you compare Matherin to to say you mentioned Anthony Edwards. I think Anthony Edwards has all the athletic gifts you could want, but he is not very good at like getting that contact and getting to the line. Whereas from his first day in the NBA, it seemed like Matherin had sort of mastered those dark arts. Yeah, the thing about Matherin is, is when we think about athleticism, like I don't think he's elite athletic in any particular area, but he has athleticism in a lot of areas. So like three plays that I would bring up, like they're playing the magic and he got a tip in over Bull Bull on his second jump. That's one. They're playing the Miami Heat and he gathered his dribble outside the free throw line and there was four Heat players standing in the paint and he got an and one at the rim because of his body control and what he was able to do with a Euro step. And then the play that he had recently against the Minnesota Timberwolves where Carl Anthony Towns and Rudy Gobert were both closing to him on a drive and he squeezed between them with his back to the basket and was able to finish with his left. So he has this type of athleticism that's more, uh, we always think of it like in terms of, it's kind of like the Luca effect, not that Benedict is Luca, but we don't think of athleticism in terms of Luca being his ability to decelerate his last step. And with Benedict, it's, it's kind of like sometimes more football athleticism in terms of how he can control himself and his change of speed at times when he's headed downhill. But they're just putting him in a lot of positions to be able to draw free throws as well. Like, I mean, when you watch him come out of like a, out of the corner, they explode him out of the corner a lot into handoffs and out of pin downs that, you know, when he gets rolling downhill in those situations, he looks to bump and run. Like he looks to make contact and then go. And like what you're saying there, like I honestly can't remember a pacer in recent history when I've been covering the team who's been as adept at drawing contact and, and seeking contact as what he's been. And in terms of it being a bench thing or like a starting thing, like the other night when they were playing the Brooklyn Nets, he got an isolation against Kevin Durant. And, you know, he's a very confident player. He went for it, created, you know, separation, got to the basket and then sought the contact against Kevin Durant and, and got to the line. So I don't think it's necessarily just that he's coming off the bench. I think he's just that adept at being able to do it. Sure. So I think you, you mentioned one of the other players I wanted to hit on briefly. And that that's, that's, that's Neesmith, Aaron Neesmith, who I, you know, I, I kind of liked things he'd done in flashes in, in Boston, but it seems like he, uh, you know, combination of injuries and sort of them being a really good team and, and him not getting a lot of leeway to make mistakes seemed like he had some confidence issues as well. Um, he's, I mean, he's, he's, he's given them something. And the other player who, who has, who has kind of caught my eye at times has been Isaiah Jackson. Um, what what can you tell me about about Jackson in particular? And then we'll 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 touch on Neesmith. Yeah, Isaiah Jackson. His minutes have been a little bit up and down here late. He didn't play a lot against the Lakers, and he he only played like seven or eight minutes against the Nets. Um, he has probably the most role gravity on the team. Like just to bring up an adjustment where he was kind of important when they played the Denver Nuggets. The Nuggets are one of like only two teams that have cross matched the Jalen Miles Turner front court, which I don't know why more teams don't do that. Like, I know that's in part because of Jokic and not wanting him to be having to defend in space. So they put Jokic on Jalen, let him sag off and put Aaron Gordon slash Jeff Green on Miles Turner at the beginning of that game. And, you know, that pushed Miles out onto the perimeter. He had he was like one of four from the field in that game or in the first quarter. And three of those shots were from three. 
So I think they wanted to put Jalen more into the screening action, but then they ended up making a substitution, put Isaiah Jackson in so that, you know, Jokic would then be guarding Isaiah Jackson. And now you're getting roll gravity. You're having somebody that can at least, you know, put a little bit more pressure on the rim. Um, so that's definitely a big thing. Like he's the most likely person on the team to actually draw a tag a lot of times, which, you know, their spacing makes that not as big of a deal. Cause obviously if nobody's going to miles, then he's getting a pretty easy attempt on the roll. But Isaiah will actually draw that backside defender because of what he is with his vertical gravity and his lob threat. Um, I'm still a little bit frustrated with his screening. I think that could be better in terms of his recognition of what type of coverage is out there, whether he needs to change the angle and then also just setting a stationary one. He really likes to be a little bit extra and stick his elbow out and try to hit contact when it's really not necessary to be doing that. Um, And then defensively, I think he's starting to figure out a little bit more in drop, but I'm still of the opinion. We got a little peak of it in that Denver game, a little peak of it in another game where Miles and Isaiah Jackson played together. And I'm guessing that part of the reason they don't want to do that is because they don't want teams cross-matching against Miles, which they're going to do. They're going to put the five on Ajax. But I'd like to see more of Isaiah Jackson kind of in the, the Robert Williams role, like what Boston does in terms of really leaning into him being an event creator, his ability to get blocks and steals and roam more in that situation where then you could be using Miles in the traditional drop role. And then, you know, if, if Ajax does get a screen, you're using him to switch and then having – Miles scram out the mismatch. I like that process, but that's not a look that they've really dug into very much to this point in the season. Does he move his feet enough, uh, well enough to, to guard out on the floor? That's that's sort of yeah. one of the reasons why Robert Williams in that role works so well is is he is he is you know for a massive human being he's very light on his feet and you know can holds up well if he's if he's being forced to to guard a small in isolation on the perimeter. Um, what, yeah, how is how is Jackson at that? Yeah, exactly. So his ground coverage is great. Like his mobility is really good. It's more so a problem of like at the back end of last season, I've seen this happen this year too. He's not always the most principled and that kind of applies to his defense as a whole, but like he'll, he'll flip his hips too soon against the switch or he'll open his stance too soon. And like, you know, maybe it's James Harden. He's doing it to James Harden's left. Like it's that type of stuff that he does out on the perimeter. Like or he'll jump on a pump fake, which is the case, you know, kind of all over the floor. He likes to jump on finishing moves against guards. He'll bite on pump fakes out of the post. Like, you kind of just want to staple his feet to the floor a little bit because he, he can out-jump anybody. So if he jumps second, that's that's the goal, I think, that they want for him a lot of the time. But, like, he moves well enough to do it. It's just a question of kind of, like I said, the, the theme of his defense is just being more principled in a lot of what he's doing. And I think, you know because he so naturally wants to roam away from the ball and he's good at blocking shots on the perimeter. I just, I'd like to get a little bit more of a view of it, but I understand from Rick Carlisle's perspective why they aren't. And again, like if any of it's about, you know, massaging Miles's trade value, clearly that's been working and you want him to be guarded by fives as much as you can. Um, so he is getting some of those matchups like what he got against Minnesota where, you know, Rudy Gobert's watching him shoot. Like that's not going to happen if Isaiah Jackson's out there. Sure. Um, so let just, you know, what have you seen from, from Neesmith? Yeah. Neesmith's been a little bit up and down. I mean, he was huge in the game against Orlando when he got the rebound at the end of the game, he had made multiple threes. There's been times, a few times where the Pacers as a whole have kind of struggled a little bit against zone teams have zoned them more in part, because I think how much, you know, Tyrese runs pick and roll, it takes them out of their pick and roll attack. So, you know, Aaron's made some shots against one, three, one zone and two, three zone. I mean, I think ideally he's like a stationary shooter because he likes to, you know, do the hop catch when he gets into his shot. He kind of needs to do that or it throws off his rhythm. Um, My biggest thing with him and where I need to see improvement from him is his attack of closeouts. 
Um, he had one really good moment against the Lakers the other night where he got a flare screen attack behind it on the move and actually used his left hand against Anthony Davis, but then right-handed the layup, which is kind of what he tends to do. Like, even if he's driving left, he's going to want to finish with his right. And a lot of those, like, that might be one of the more perilous plays. Like, Aaron Neesmith trying to attack the basket with his left hand, not too great. Um, I think he needs to, <laughs> like I said, he needs he needs to improve overall at putting the ball on the floor against closeouts. That applies to Jalen as well. But um, I think defensively, he's given them stuff. Like, they'll, you know, if he's, They'll put him on Cade Cunningham and have him pick Cade Cunningham up full court and really apply pressure because they don't have to have a lot of from him offensively. If he makes a few threes, that's that's good. Um, so that lets him expend more energy on the defensive end. So I think that they, he has made some subtle strides, but it isn't super consistent to this point in time. So I guess uh, I'm going to ask you, you know, as we kind of look towards wrapping up here, I'm going to ask you to get your crystal ball out here. And, you know, where do you think the Pacers end up this year? And, Longer term, who are the who are the the real the, the players you expect? If you had if you went forward and, and took a snapshot of their roster two years from now, you know the start of the of not not the twenty three twenty four but start of twenty four twenty five, who are the players from this roster that are still on that team? So let's start with it this year first, and then get into the, the the longer term. Yeah, those are those are tough questions. I mean, I really can't get a feel for where Miles Turner's head's at. I mean, it seems to think that some national reporters think he's going to sign an extension. If he does it and they have to move him, then you know, I, I, the defense is going to probably go back to where it was at the beginning of the season, and I don't think this is going to be a good basketball team. If we're imagining that the roster stays exactly as it is, which I think that that would be kind of risky unless they're signing him to an extension before the trade deadline, then – I think this could be a play in team. I think that I think that they will fall back some from where they currently are just because like I said, I've seen them I've seen them make adjustments against some teams that weren't completely whole that I don't know would work if those other players were available. And that's kind of where I get held up and and times I get held up too like what I just said with the Let's, the Nets and the Lakers. Like not that those have been, you know, great basketball teams to start the season, but it's more so a case of the Pacers playing with more effort than their opponent than I necessarily think it was something, you know, sustainable that I was seeing in, in those fourth quarters. So I think that they will drop back. I think there's some teams behind them that we can expect to move forward a little bit. Um, even now, like with the Raptors getting Pascal Siakam back, I would expect that that team will move ahead of them. So I think that they could be a play in team and maybe make the playoffs out of the play in tournament. If they're, you know, shooting the ball really well out of that long-term, that's a really tough question. I mean, I think absolutely Tyrese Halliburton and Benedict Mathern will still be part of this core. Um, Chris Duarte, who we haven't even talked about because he's been out of the lineup so long. I would have said him, but I, I have some degree of question given that, you know, he's 25 years old. If you don't like the look of Tyrese and Benedict and Chris all playing at the same time, and he's going to be coming off the bench from you, I kind of wonder if you don't look at moving him given that he's on a rookie contract like I hope people don't misconstrue that I'm not reporting anything there I'm just saying that like given what his age timeline is and that I do think he could be of value to a competitive playoff team right now based on what his skill set is maybe you look at that if you don't like starting three guards at the same time given that Nemhard defensively is ahead of Chris I think um, I think Andrew yeah. Nemhard yeah. will be part of that I was going to say that's that's the other that's the other part of it is is it's not nothing against him it's just like oh well he was he was a surprisingly good rookie last year you have two surprisingly good rookies at similar positions this year that are just better yeah, yeah. Uh, the Pacers are a very guard and center heavy roster so it does make it a little bit tough so I I think I would look at Tyrese Benedict 
Nemhard. I mean, I think Isaiah Jackson's still going to be part of it. I still think that despite some of the things that I nitpicked about Isaiah, he has a higher ceiling in terms of, I think that there's still more areas that he could reach. Um, it hasn't happened quite yet this season where I haven't really been seeing him put in different positions. Like during summer league, he was kind of testing out, you know, they'd let him grab the ball off the glass and kind of bring it up, or they do a little bit more with him in handoffs or keepers. And there really hasn't been a lot of that to this point, which it doesn't necessarily have to be when you have, you know, Tyrese and TJ McConnell available to really push the pace. But point being, I think it'll, I think still him. Um, and those are kind of the four main guys that I would look at. Um, I think that the Pacers really like Jalen Smith. I've been kind of lukewarm on some of the stuff that he's done to begin the season. His shot's been really up and down, and, and I haven't seen much development from him in terms of attacking closeouts. I have liked his early work around the basket. I've liked some of the stuff that he's done running the floor and being able to seal guys, but that's kind of been the main area for him. But um, I think that's probably who I would look at on the roster unless unless they retain Miles. It's at, at one point, that's a – good start and also a lot of holes to fill. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of the thing too. Like I know I made those allusions to the 2017, 18 team before, but like that was a really magical season, a good one, a fun one to watch. And then obviously, you know, Victor getting hurt derailed some of that, but you know, it's, it's interesting to look back and wonder like if they hadn't have exceeded expectations that year and they had had a good draft pick to pair with what Sabonis became and what Victor was, is that a better path forward for you? And that's kind of what I toy around with a lot with this team is like winning is fun. I'm sure, you know, players want to win games, but is it better for, you know, I believe so much in what Benedict and Tyrese are. Is it better for them long-term if the team was what we expected them to be and you could add somebody else out of this really talented draft class to grow with the two of them? Maybe I'm just being, yeah. I was going to say, maybe I'm just being a prisoner of the moment, but I think Halliburton is right now better than, than Oladipo yeah. was yeah. before he got hurt. And I think that's a, that's sort of a step change in, in like, okay, well, we're winning too many games because uh, we, we got a top, I don't know. I, I haven't even really started looking at, at, you know, my tiers for next year, but uh Halliburton's going to be on there and he's going to be high. Um, so I mean, is he, is he a borderline top 25 player at this point? Um I mean, if you're if if we're saying that we think he's an all star this year, you kind of gotta have him in that conversation. Yeah, I mean, Victor was all defense that year, and very rightfully so. I mean, we didn't really talk about Tyrese's defense. Um, he's not close to being what Victor was in that particular season, but I do think that Tyrese is playing at an overall better level. Um, and that the two differences too is I think that this team has a higher ceiling in terms of what they're doing offensively. That seventeen eighteen season was very dependent on forcing turnovers and their ability to convert those turnovers, their offense, just like they weren't going to have another gear to get to in the playoffs. They were going to be a try hard team and that worked for them. But then, you know, I had a bit of a ceiling in that first round. I think that this team's offense is a lot more sustainable than that from what we're seeing. I mean, obviously there's going to be three point variants, but um, in terms of Tyrese's run of it and Rick Carlisle's design of it, I believe in that ceiling more than what that was. But um I still think it's a worthwhile question for them to ask as they continue to evaluate the realness of what they're seeing and whether um, what they thought they were going to be. Because if you listen to them at media day, like a lot of the words that were being used was, you know, patient that they were evaluating this team based on the progress of individual players, not necessarily wins and losses and optimizing wins. Like I don't think that this is even what they expected going into the season. Sure. No, I was going to say it's, it's also, uh, I think fortuitous, that you're you're catching Rick Carlisle having just coached Luca for a while because I think before Luca like 
putting the ball in a guy's hands and letting him, you know, orchestrate was not exactly his MO. And it seems like he's, he's, he's learned to, to, to love heliocentrism a little bit and it's, that served Halliburton well. Yeah. And the big difference there is, uh, that Luca's usage is what, like 35% and Tyrese's is like 23. So like, it, it's kind of a, it's kind of the perfect, you know, middle of the Venn diagram there for Rick Carlisle to a degree. Cause like, yeah, he's having a star with the ball in his hands a lot, but he's still playing a lot of lineups with multiple guards in them where it's still kind of guard play by committee where he likes the idea. I mean, there's times where they'll play TJ McConnell, Tyrese Halliburton and Andrew Nemhart at the same time. Cause he likes having so many players on the floor that can, you know, pass the ball, move the ball, make very quick decisions. So He's still kind of getting the both of both the best of both worlds to a degree. Sure. Um, let me see. Anything else that you that that you think that uh, we should talk about with regard to the Pacers this year? No, I mean I think we've we've covered it pretty well tonight. We got the uh, great Kings Pacers Super Bowl of trade narratives and referendums. So we get to get Needed. through that. And... It's it's looking pretty win win right now. I got to say. I got to say that I don't I don't really care for rehashing trades all that much, especially not this early into a season. But I I can enjoy the basketball. That's what part of it I will enjoy tonight. I will enjoy like I did last year, how much you get to see when a player plays their old team, how much that old team knows that player. And it's kind of like getting a very quick and easy scouting report, Um, watching them force Tyrese to his left and do the, the, the week to switch where then he was having to make plays against the switch as well was very telling. I look forward to seeing how the Pacers are going to guard Sabonis as well, um, just based on how some of his old teammates have guarded him, like Steven Adams and Thad, and really taking away his ability to turn over his le- his his right shoulder, I mean, and get to his left. Um, and just the fact that both teams are playing, you know, a pretty enjoyable brand of basketball. We're yeah. get it. Whenever When I was on the last time and you brought that up about Miles and Sabonis and us talking about the Warriors, I remember talking about, you know, how amazing it would have been to see Sabonis in the Warriors offense and their modified split cuts and, and their flow game. And now Mike Brown's kind of imported some of that to Sacramento. So we are getting to get a, a look at it. So I think a lot of threes will be attempted. I think a lot of possessions are going to happen. I think there's going to be a lot of pace in this game. So <laughs> the, uh, the, the, uh, two, the two man elbow action with, uh, with Sabonis and Kevin Herter is one of the uh, more pleasing, uh, the aesthetically pleasing kind of offensive staples in the NBA right now. So I mean, yeah, I definitely, I definitely miss, like we talk about, or I guess it was a talking point last year during the Embiid Jokic MVP debate stuff about, you know, whether handoffs count as assists or not. And that, you know, allegedly Jokic was juicing his assists with handoff assists. And I think that there is a skill to handoffs after watching Sabonis for as many years as I did and watching the other players on the Pacers roster. Like Jokic is one of the few guys in the NBA. I mean, Sabonis is one of the few guys in the NBA who's going to just drop off a handoff like with a live dribble like he doesn't even really hand it off because he just trusts his screening to that degree and that was always so much fun to watch when you would do that with Doug McDermott and Justin Holiday. so I'm glad that it's it's found a new wavelength with Kevin Herter and Malik Monk uh, in Sacramento but not a lot of people are going to care about handoff nuances but I do I mean I'm 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 right there with you so as a as a handoff enjoyer as a I've, I, you know, the part of what, what has made it is, is I think that, that, uh, term that I think Zach Lowe has done has started to popularize is the, is the QB keeper. And that's always the, you know, the, the fake handoff into a quick spin to the basket. It's always one of the, yep. the more delightful plays we, we see. And it's surprising that it doesn't get used more because it's so effective against switches. Um, you gotta have the right guy to do it to be able to, to turn downhill. But yeah, Sabonis had started working some of that in last year. 
or the last couple of years, some inverted pick and rolls as well. So I think there's even more fun stuff that they could do with De'Aaron and Sabonis in terms of that. Um, like if, if a team's going to duck under, instead of doing a rescreen against the under, just have De'Aaron pitch it back to Sabonis as the ball handler. Like, I think those types of wrinkles could be pretty effective between the two of them, but maybe they are doing that. I have, I probably haven't seen enough Kings possessions. Well, in, enjoy getting to, to see a full game with them tonight. And, and uh, I've, I've enjoyed having you on as always. Is anything that uh, you've written recently or have coming out soon you want to plug? Yeah, so today we had a podcast episode come out just reviewing the two games against LA, looking ahead to the Kings game tonight. And then I, two days ago, or gosh, time's blending together <laughs> when the Pacers are on West Coast trips and I've stayed up late. But I wrote all about Andrew Nemhard's defense and what that's been doing for the Pacers and, and the development he's shown on that end of the court. So that's the most recent one. And then in the back of my head, when I get time, I really want to talk about um, what they're doing to get so many early three-point attempts because um, they're doing it better than like any team in the last five seasons. So I think that's pretty interesting as well. Well, cool. I look forward to that. Uh, Caitlin Cooper, thanks a lot for coming on. I've, I've learned a lot from you, as I always do. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me. And thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with uh, my old friend, Danny LaRue, joining us on Call and Shots. Thanks for listening and take care.